chapter 15, please. We'd like to look at leadership and authority part two. We started last week in Acts chapter six, and I think we gave you some insight as far as some of the developments that occur when a church grows and then the leadership structure that was put in place so that they could accommodate the thousands of people that were joining the fellowship. Now I would like us to look at what happens when leadership and authority has to deal with bad doctrine that comes into fellowship or church. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. If you come down to verse 23, and they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. For as much as you have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men with you of our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall tell you the same things by mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting into churches, leadership and authority. Thank you for the order that you provided for people that walk with you and for the various assemblies. We pray that tonight as we look into the scripture that you speak to all of our hearts in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. We told you that when a fellowship grows quite naturally because you have more than one personality, more than one person, you're going to have diverse opinions. So you're going to have to have individuals there and in positions of leadership and power who can help try to make some very basic decisions. In Acts chapter 6, we talked to you a little bit about some of the qualifications. They needed the people that be people who were wise, had the Holy Spirit, and walked with God. We told you that just because a person is a good businessman, that does not make them a good Christian. So the people that you want in authority are people that do have a relationship with the king. We told you there are two basic leadership styles in the book of Acts. The first half of the book of Acts deals with the Presbyterian form. I'm not talking about the denomination. I'm just talking about a plurality of ministers, apostles and elders. And the second half of the book of Acts is a more Episcopal style. And I'm not talking about the denomination. I'm talking about Paul starting churches in particular regions and then he appointing people to stay there as the leader of the church, such as Titus on the island of Crete and Timothy 
as he was appointed to serve the church there in Ephesus. So essentially, those are your only two that are developed with detail in the book of Acts. If you have hundreds of people or thousands of people, sometimes even if you're only dealing with handfuls of people, the only way to create unity amongst the people you're pastoring is to cause them to think the same thing about the same scriptures or in the same way about the scriptures. If you cannot produce that, then there won't be accord, there won't be harmony, but there will be strife, there might be some friction and things of that nature. The church at Antioch was a sending church. If you were in the Middle East today, Antioch is a part of Turkey right now, but it's right on the border with Turkey and Syria. I've been there and uh, stayed there several days at one time, and it's a beautiful place, but the majority of the people speak not only Turkish, but also Arabic. And there still is a Christian community there that says it goes back thousands of years. Well, this place is where Paul and Barnabas and others had their ministries, and it's from that particular area that they were sent out. So they went out, did their missions work. They're coming back, giving a report. And as you can see here in chapter 15, verse 1, in the middle of all of that, some people came up from Judea or the Jerusalem region, and they started teaching a new way, or they started putting some prescriptions on how you can be saved. You've got to keep the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised. Of course, Paul and them were displeased with this because Paul and Barnabas had been traveling all around Asia and other places telling people we no longer have to keep the law. That you are Gentile converted to Christ. You do not have to be circumcised according to the Jewish teaching. But here you have people saying you have to maintain circumcision that goes all the way back to Abraham or you can't be saved. Now, they didn't say you couldn't be part of the church. And they didn't say that if, if, if you didn't do this, that it, it meant that you couldn't come and have a meal with us. They were saying your salvation is nullified if you're not circumcised. You may say you love Jesus. You may say your sins are forgiven. But if you have not been circumcised, you're not saved. Well, of course, it didn't make any sense because ladies couldn't be circumcised. And this is on the issue of uh, living after Christ has died on the cross. And with this kind of a teaching, can you imagine how many people suddenly found themselves wobbly in their faith? Now, you would assume that people who know God wouldn't allow a teaching to come and unsettle them in their faith. But you'd be surprised how many Christians who have been following the Lord a short period of time or a long period of time, if somebody comes along with a new teaching, they just swallow it just like a baby bird in a nest when they think mama has showed up and they just suddenly get confused about what should be one of the most basic issues for the believer. So let me quickly give you the whole course or just in a nutshell, the course of salvation. God sent his son into this world to live the life we were incapable of leading, okay, to keep the law that it was impossible for us to keep. He died in our place 
hung up there on the cross, receiving the judgment, the guilt, the penalty in our place that we should have received because we were guilty. But on the basis of that, we've been acquitted of the charges that were against us. And because of that, the Lord is able to say about us, we are not guilty because we trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what redemption accomplished for you and it accomplished for me. So if someone comes along and says to me, well, you're not saved unless you belong to our church or denomination. I wouldn't believe it. If somebody came along and said to me, well, you're not saved unless you've been baptized according to our formula. I wouldn't believe that at all. But I know a whole lot of people who have been shaken in their faith on the basis of things like that. In verse two, it was so heated in the church with this debate going on that it said there was no small dissension and disputation. That, that's, a, that's a very nice way of saying these folks were fighting. Yeah, heated arguments. That's what this was. Intense moments of fellowship. I mean, wouldn't you be upset? Imagine if someone came into the church and, and suddenly they started saying, we know that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you must know that Joseph Smith is the true prophet of God and we have to accept him if we want to be saved. Now, Joseph Smith is the, is the founder of Mormonism. Well, there are a whole lot of people that believe that. And very often what Mormons will do when they're going to do their two years abroad to do their witnessing they're told by their folks, go into different churches, take a KJV Bible with you, uh, use that kind of language, get in there, get kind of close with them, and then start the conversation. And pretty soon you can introduce them to the Book of the Mormon. But you start with the basic Bible that they use. See, there's, there's always enough truth to act as bait to get your attention. But then there's also enough error that can mislead you all together. I preached in a church one time, and when I got there, I noticed they had these two young men up in the pulpit area, and I didn't know who they were. So I got up and was sitting there waiting for my uh, time to preach that night. It was a revival, and I was preaching for this, this, uh, this young pastor down there in North Carolina. So she, she said, we've got elder so-and-so, uh, they're also here visiting tonight. We want to have them get up and say a few words. And, and so I was looking at them, and I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. So they, they got up, and then they started talking. And I think he was three minutes into it, and I realized this man was a Mormon. And I'm thinking, why in the world did the pastor let the Mormon get up here and address these people in the church and so once he was done and his friend uh, there they stepped out of the pulpit and of course I, I got up there and I, I I preached like this would be the last service anybody would ever have and, and and I made it very plain that there's only one way one road of salvation and it doesn't lead to Joseph Smith and his feet have never even been on it you see I made it very plain Christ is the only one. But these are the kinds of things that have to be dealt with. You say, why do leaders and teachers and people in authority and moms and dads have to deal with this when it comes into the house? Because it can shipwreck someone's soul. Every fellowship, 
every denomination, every local church has to have some kind of this we believe teaching. They have to have something like that. And this is why, whether it's the Presbyterians, the Lutherans or others, this is why you have catechism. This is why you have basic teachings like that. This is why they have um, new members classes for people who come into church. The, the whole idea is you want to be able to ensure that people think the same way about particular texts in the scripture. Now, the Bible says for you that it's, it's incumbent upon you to study to show yourself approved that you can rightly divide the word of truth. Truth, So you have to be able to listen to what is being taught to you and know whether or not it actually is according to scripture or if it's a tradition that somebody created. And you have to know that. The only way you know that you've got to train on the original document, if you don't pay attention to what the scripture says, you will be easily deceived. Absolutely. And this is why we have... I don't know, rough count, 6,000 denominations in America they said we had over 40 years ago. I can't imagine what it would be right now. And I'm sure if you talk to the president or executive director of each one of them, they make it very plain to you that they are the ones that are correct. Yeah. Uh, 60 years ago, I know for a fact and you can still run into some if they're over 70 or over 80. I know for a fact that there were people in the Church of Christ that honestly believed they were the only church that had the truth. And you couldn't have a piano in there. And you couldn't have a tambourine or anything else. I know for a fact that there were people that were part of the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Their founder taught openly. There is no salvation outside this church. This is the true church in the South. Assemblies of God used to teach that many, many years ago. Roman Catholics in many places still believe that there is no salvation outside of the Holy Mother Church. And I could go on and on with uh, the, the, the different, different churches. All I'm saying to you is when people come in with a teaching that differs from what someone else is saying, you have to get into the book to find out if it's really true. What they were teaching wasn't in the book. This is not what God was saying. But if someone comes to you with truth that is correct, then the Bible says the truth shall set you free. It, it'll open up your life to help you be able to see that God has wonderful things he wants to do with you. So they said, OK, well, let's send these folks to headquarters and we can find out in headquarters because that is where Jesus was at. And the apostles and elders should be able to answer this question. So they probably gave Paul and them some offerings or helped them get on their way to go there. And then in verse four, when they got there, Paul and Barnabas told the story of the miracles in their travels, the people that were being saved, the Gentiles that were coming to Christ, the Jewish people that were turning from old time Judaism to accept Christ as the Messiah. In verse six says the apostles and elders came together and to talk about this. This was like a convocation. It was, this is a, an assembly to figure out what the truth is. If we can get enough minds together in a room collectively, we should be able to come around to the truth. Because the scripture says, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. So it is a whole lot better sometimes to get more than yourself involved when you're trying to come to 
an answer about something. Uh, and the reason you have to do that is because the decision that you make is likely going to affect a whole lot of people. So you can see in verse 7 there, there had been a whole lot of arguing there. So the arguing, it transferred itself from Antioch to Jerusalem. Because the question went from Antioch to Jerusalem. There's some subjects that come up, it doesn't matter where it is, it's going to produce arguments and debates. I don't care where you bring it up in America, any kind of church, any kind of home. You get on the issue of homosexuality, there's going to be a debate, there's going to be arguments, there's going to be all kind of heated discussions. You can go and you can talk about heaven or hell, the reality of the one or the other. And I can promise you there are going to be heated discussions because there will be someone arguing powerfully that here's what the scripture says. and You've got to stick with the scriptures. And there'll be another person saying, well, surely you can't believe in the 21st century. We've got to hold on to those hidebound beliefs. Do you honestly believe there's a place called hell and God's going to let people go and be in torment? See? Those kinds of arguments. Certain teachings produce debate, but you have to have somebody in a position of power that finally puts their foot down and says, look, this is what we believe. This is all there is to it. Now, you may not like what particular groups believe, but unless you're shackled to a pew, you can leave it any time when you're in a particular movement or denomination. If somebody said to me, I doubt that Jesus was really born of a virgin, I, of a virgin, I'd probably already be putting my shoes on. See, and, and it, as it gets progressively worse, then I'm thinking, well, what, what is is all of this about? The, the whole point is in verse six, the apostles and elders who come together ought to have some idea about what is right and what is wrong. Because if the leaders are going astray, there's a very good chance they're going to take the people astray with them. Now, you may say you don't understand, Daryl. I have very, very strong beliefs and it's going to be very difficult to uproot me from them beliefs. But I'm going to tell you right now, a, a minister has influence and a minister typically commands respect. And if you sit Year after year, week after week, and someone tells you this book really is not the inspired word of God, but some of the events in it are legendary and some of them are not true. I promise you over a period of time, if you are not a very strong minded person, what's in that preacher is going to get in you. And then pretty soon you'll be saying, well, you know, like like I had a, a lady tell me one time they taught Sunday school in a, in a church. We, we said to her. Uh, do you believe anybody's perfect? And she said, do you believe Jesus was perfect? She said, well, of course, nobody's ever been perfect. She was a Sunday school teacher. I thought, really? You didn't know Jesus was the spotless lamb of God that died on the cross for our sins. If he wasn't perfect, then we're all yet in our sins. But this is what she had learned. This is what she had been taught. So we, we don't get angry because of the teachings that that come down, we just simply have to ask ourselves, is this in accordance with Scripture? And then we make, make our, our decision on the basis of that. 20, 25, 30, 40 years ago for sure, if you were a minister and you got a divorce, you pretty much were out of the ministry. I mean, now they would do some case-by-case -case circumstances, but typically if 
you, 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 you ended a, a marriage for whatever reason, they would hold you out of ministry until the spouse died. And then once the spouse died, then you were free to get back to preaching and free to remarry. Now, I, I, I had a whole lot of preacher friends, older preacher friends who never did like that. And it's it's, uh, you know, depending on the circumstances is how how I approach it. But my whole point is this. The denomination in which you held your papers. They have the right to have their rules. And since it's a voluntary association, if you don't like it, all you need to do is get papers from somewhere else. But there's no sense in you getting upset with them because they're applying to you what they've been applying to other people for 40 years. Because some people, they, they, they don't have a problem with something until you apply it to them. See? So when it comes to teaching, if someone comes around with, with teaching that is false, you have to be willing to deal with it. As a full gospel person who, who, who still maintains clearly that what occurred in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19, that it still occurs around the, the earth today, I have met people who have tried to teach others that if you do not speak with tongues, you are not saved. I said, that's error. That is heresy. That is wrong. That is error. You can't teach people that because the blood is what saves people. But then I've also met people who have said, if you are not baptized in water, you cannot go to heaven. I said, that's error because the blood is what qualifies us. For our entry into heaven, the blood of Jesus, his death, our trust in that blood. Imagine how many people there are on this earth who died before they ever got into the water and were baptized. Yeah. So we, we, we don't do that. The thief on the cross, I don't think anybody was throwing water on him when he was up there. But Jesus said to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. So moms and dads. When when you were raising your kids and the, the teacher might have said something at school that you didn't particularly agree with, I, I guarantee you at that table, you probably said something like, I don't care what the principal and superintendent said. They're not raising you. You belong to me. See? And this is what this is. This is the way it's going to operate here. Or somebody else could could come along and and a, and a man down the street uh, may tell your kid, well, what your dad told you is wrong, and I don't like that. And there are probably a whole lot of dads that confronted a neighbor and said, look, whether you like what I told my son is, is irrelevant to me. I mean, I, I'm the father, and I'll tell him and raise him exactly like I want him. He belongs to me. Well, I know my dad used to do that. Yeah. Oh, yes, he used to do that. Yeah. And, and I, I love to, to say to my mom and dad, I say, well, Eric's parents are letting them do it. And so you know what the response to that is. Well, Eric doesn't live in this house. You live here with me and you're going to do what I've told you to do. Oh, really? Yeah. I threatened my mom one time. I told my mom, I said, look, I couldn't have been but seven or eight. I, I threatened her. I said, look, I, I call downtown, call social services. I call the police. <laughs> You got to know my mom. Oh, my goodness. My mom's 5'10", this big, but, but 
you know, strong, strong lady. So I, I, I made that statement to her and she kind of she just kind of said, well, you can make as many calls as you want. Just remember when they get here, they got to get through the door and said, I promise you, when they get through the door, there won't be much of you left for them to take. <laughs> That's what she told me. So never one time did I ever pick the phone up <laughs> and act like I was going to do that. But in that setting, of course, you learn leadership and authority. Kids learn it just by virtue of the fact that mom and dad are the ones raising them. Uh, teenage boys have a tendency to, to hit that stage where every now and then they kind of want to, you know, try dad and see if they're really strong enough to to handle them or see how far they could go and push the boundaries. And I did that with my dad also one time. We were at the top of the stairs and and I mouthed off to him and, and said, I don't know what it was, something about maybe cutting the grass or anything. All I know is uh, when I when I when I finally got up at the bottom of the stairs and was making my way back up, I just went outside and did everything he told me to do. Authority. See, authority. And and when that isn't enforced, you have rebellion, you have revolt. I realize that your parents may not have been quite as forceful as mine, although I think some of you probably did have something like that and might even been more forceful. But I do know that you understand this. If if you didn't parent in that house, somebody else, they would have run, run that house. You didn't parent the kids, the kids would have run that house. And it's the same thing in, in local churches. If the pastor doesn't pastor the sheep, there's always somebody else believe they can do it a whole lot better. And there's always someone from the outside who will come in with strange teachings and, and odd doctrines. All the years that I've been here, we've had people with odd ideas who've come in and out, usually don't stay. I remember in our early years, we had someone who came here to the Bible study and they tried to get a, a teaching going amongst a handful of people saying that when the Bible says that Cain was of that evil one, that 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 is because Eve actually had physical relations with the serpent. And and so that is why he, uh, Cain was of that wicked one. I remember standing out there on that um, was standing just inside the door as this person was explaining this to me. And I said, no, that's unscriptural. I don't believe that. They said, well, no, that, that's the truth. That's what William Branham used to teach. He was a man had a lot of different gifts that were used in the 50s and 60s. And when he died, his people believed he was the Elijah to come. They didn't even bury his body because they thought he was going to be raised from the dead. And they held him out of the grave for like 45 days or so. So I was talking to this individual over there near the door. And as he was he was saying that, I said, just just come right on over here. And I just just kind of opened up the door. We went outside. And I said, there's probably some people out here somewhere outside this door that believes what you're saying. But inside this door, we don't believe that you don't have to come back again. You don't have to come back again. You you can't have that kind of a teaching circulating if it'll make people's faith unstable. See, I see you didn't you never even knew that that even went on. See, See, I'm just so delicate and tactful the way we kind of handle all of that. Okay, so verse verse number eight then says the God who knows the heart and bears witness 
He's the one that gave them the Holy Spirit as he did to us, and he didn't put any difference between them and us. This is Peter talking. So why turn around and tempt God and put a yoke on their neck that our fathers couldn't bear and we can't even bear? Why go back up under all of these rules if we couldn't keep them in the first place? And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. It's not about rules. The scripture says, if you walk in love, you won't stumble. All of the law hangs on two, two statements. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law hang on those two things. If you can do that and have the Lord, you're on your way to heaven and you're not going to have any problems at all. Because if you love God with your whole heart and your mind and your strength and your soul, when false doctrine comes around, you'll say, well, no, I'm not accepting that at all. Because that's putting some kind of a separation between me and my God. And I'm not letting you put Moses between me and my God and his salvation. I don't need to be circumcised. I wasn't circumcised yesterday and I was saved. I wasn't circumcised five months ago and I was still saved. Now you're coming and telling me that I haven't been circumcised, so I'm not a Christian. And you're telling me that I'm not saved. I'm going to believe what Paul and everybody else said rather than believe what you're saying. So we come back to verse, verse number 12. Everybody's listening. Paul and Barnabas get up and give the testimony of their missionary travels. Finally, James gets up and he says, brethren, you know what Peter just said. Peter's words agree with the prophecy out of Amos. My decree in verse 19 or my verdict is that we write a letter to them and we tell them in verse 20, to stay away from the pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. And verse 23 says they gave him the letter. So everybody was happy. And this is why letters are written by headquarters. And this is why letters are written by pastors. And this is why letters are given to people to help them to understand this is right and this is wrong. Paul says to Timothy, this brother has erred in the faith and he has shipwrecked. But when you put it down in a written form, people can look at it and they can see. This is authoritative. It comes from the apostles and elders. And they said, we are not to accept the teachings of these people because they did not send them out. They were trying to impersonate people from the apostolic church. Now, I meet a whole lot of people who call themselves apostles today. And they get offended if you won't call them apostle this or prophet that. And I've had them tell me, well, you have a right to be called pastor. Why can't I be called an apostle? I said, well, you can call yourself anything that you want. But just because you put a label on the can, that doesn't mean the contents fit the label. Okay, you you, you can take. The word peaches and put it on a can of pears and go vice versa. But that, that doesn't make it true. The scripture says, surely the signs of an apostle were wrought among you and all signs and wonders and patience and mighty deeds. And if, if that isn't present, there's no sense in even thinking about the, the title apostle. And for the people who, who who want to be called a prophet, then then my question then is what what is it exactly that you're looking for? Because I don't get all tied up about the word pastor. You know, just just like at, at home, I go home. My mother, she she calls me Daryl. 
Dad calls me Daryl. So you don't get offended because they don't call you the most high reverend chief apostolic bishop of the Holy Ghost and fire sanctified church on the way to heaven fellowship. I said, no. So my, my mother named me Daryl. My dad named me Daryl. And I mean, that, that's what I'm called. And it's never offended me at all. People call me Daryl or people call me brother Daryl or pastor Daryl, anything like everybody knows who the pastor is. See, the, the, the teacher that has to go in front of the class and just start yelling, I am the teacher, you will respect me. The, the problem is they don't garner the respect because they haven't learned how to give the instruction and produce the, the command, the respect of the people. It's not the title. It's the relationship that people have. That's the key. And a, a man who was close to 100 years old told me in the pulpit one time in Bogalusa, Louisiana, when I was getting ready to preach, they introduced him so he could make a few statements. And I said to him, brother, so-and-so, or pastor, so-and-so, I said, doctor, so-and-so, what do you prefer to be called? He said, well, I do have a doctorate degree, but call me brother. He said, brother is a term that's so much more relational. See? So I like that. Yeah, I've always appreciated that. The only thing I've ever told families, particularly from the pulpit, that make sure them kids know how to respect the pastor, know how to honor authority. And uh, we're not teaching them to run around and call the teachers by their first name in school. So make sure they understand how to respect the pastor and, and how to address a pastor. So we, we don't get caught up in the in the titles, but we do know that authority flows from a position of power. And so they said in those letters, you cannot eat stuff that has to do with idols. In ancient times, some people dedicated their food to idols. Now, th this was something I had to think about in the Middle East, to go down there to the marketplace. And there's a man praying his Islamic prayers over all of his meat and stuff hanging from a hook. Folks, I mean, there's no FDA over there. I mean, you, you go down to the marketplace, the, the meat is hanging right out there. You got people walking up to it, touching it, smelling it, flies are jumping off of it. And you have to you have to choose what you're going to take home. And they, they, they start their day dedicating all of that food to Allah. Now, for me, since there weren't any Christian butchers where I lived in the uh, village, it, it's, it's either handle this the right way or starve to death. So I'd go down there and I'd, I'd get that food and, and we'd buy the rice or whatever. And we brought that back and we always made sure we dedicated that to the Lord, prayed over it, believed God. Scripture said all meats are to be received and eaten if they're received with thanksgiving. So I was never affected by that. But there were in ancient times people who offered food to idols. And if you go to Japan and India, you find in Shintoism and in Hinduism, very often they will come to their statues with a little bowl of rice and vegetables and sometimes sit that in front of the statue to get the attention of the gods. And that's their offering to the gods. I'm not eating that. I'm not eating that. And there's no sense in the, the believer uh, getting involved with that. In, in India, I know they've got a, a temple that's dedicated to the rat god. 
And if you've ever seen a documentary or a picture of it, then you know they don't they do not kill any rodents in that facility. So when you walk into the courtyard, literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of rats. I mean, they're falling into the water. They're crawling up the sides of the walls. They're in there where people are praying at their shrines and people are doing everything they can to get their bodies into that water where the rats are because they honestly believe that has curative power. Pastor Darrell give up swimming. It's never going to happen. See, it's never going to happen. I'm going to stay away from those things that are given to idols. But then he also says, ensure that we avoid fornication. Ancient temples, as do some temples around the world today, maintained a cult of fornication with young girls. So part of the religion, you went in and you had intercourse with those ladies believing that this was part of the religion and part of how to please God. See, so when you get into Hinduism, excuse me, and you start learning a little bit about uh, yoga and you start learning about tantric yoga then you realize that you're dealing with a system of thought that is based on sexual positions that come out of a religion that is designed very often to afford the priests and other male participants the gratification of their appetites and their lusts. We stay away from that. We don't get involved with that. And, and, and if you didn't know that, then now you know that. So if you're ever in a conversation with someone, you can talk to them about it. Or you can do your own your own research on that. But I, this is just stuff I encountered through the years being overseas. So we, we stay away from fornication outside of the covenant relationship of marriage. And then they even said we want you to avoid blood and things that are strangled. Every fall around here when it's deer season, you can I don't I, I haven't seen too much of it around here, but I know in Red Cloud and some of the other towns, it's common. You'll find some deer hanging from a branch somewhere. You know what they're doing? They're bleeding out that animal. They're draining the blood out of that animal. But as you can see from this, you can kill an animal and retain the blood in it through strangulation. Genesis chapter 9, I believe verse 4, tells us that we are not supposed to eat animals. The blood is still in them. And God even said to Noah, all of the animals are for your meat. However, you are not to devour them with the blood inside of them because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is a type of life. Remember, it was the blood that was shed by the Lord of Jesus Christ that brought about our redemption. As the Lamb of God, that blood was shed. So as a Christian then, I do not like to deal with blood when it comes to food. <clears throat> now it took me a while to realize that sometimes when you're eating steak, you're just dealing with that red dye. It's on that. I mean, that used to mess me up when I was a when I was in my 20s. I'd go somewhere and somebody didn't want their steak well done like I like mine. 
and they'd want that thing somewhat rare, just throw it on the grill or about 30 seconds on either side, then they'd toss it on the plate and the person sitting next to me and just red stuff everywhere. What in the world is wrong with these people? No. And then I kind of kind of kind of realized over time that that wasn't that wasn't blood, you see. But do you realize there are cultures in the world today that still use blood in a lot of mixtures and foods? I've told you about West Africa where they'll take a cow, they'll, they'll nip the neck of the cow, they hit a vein so that the blood is just spurting. And they'll take something like an old sheepskin or something like that, and they've already packed in that sheepskin a little bit of dung, a little bit of urine, They'll catch that blood, and then after that, they're going to put a little bit of milk in there with some butter, and they're going to curdle it, and it's almost going to be like a milkshake. And there are places in Togo, Benin, that's a delicacy over there. <laughs> They'd have to carry me out after I had a stroke if they tried to bring something like that to, to me. There's no way. Even I have a limit, and I've tried just about everything. But I, even I have a limit when it comes to what I will do and will not do. So what's the point of all of this? Paul and the elders want the Gentiles who are coming out of these heathen religions to ensure that even though they're walking with God now, that they're not so close to the culture that it still seems like they're participating in these pagan festivals. And he also wants them to be able to maintain some kind of relationship with the Jewish community who's coming out of Judaism and into a stronger relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who also would be offended by some of these things. So stay away from from the blood. Let's never forget. Paul is the one that tells us if we invite someone to our home to eat and we discover that the brother or sister is weak in their faith that we don't put certain kinds of food in front of them. That's in Romans. So if a person comes out of Islam or Judaism, you already know they don't like pork. So you may not have a problem with that. So why would you invite them there to have baby back ribs that are pork? See? And then they sit there, and even though they're Christian now, they have been Jewish or Muslim for decades. And so when they sit down, it is lawful for them to eat it, but their conscience is still bothering them. So you have to deal with their conscience by teaching the Bible. And then little by little, over a period of time, then, then maybe they'll be with somebody and they'll say, well, I'll take just a little piece of that bacon there. And then somebody else comes along and says, can I, can I try just a little piece of that side pork? Oh. And then pretty soon they're in there. Oh, yeah, they're in there. They're having the time of their life and then they're moving on to pig feet and all that good stuff. I mean, life is good, folks. Life is good. Okay, so let's finish up. So verse number. Verse number 30 says when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle. And you can see in verse 32, Judas and Silas was with them. Since the argument began in Antioch and they've got to take the answer back to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are the ones who came from Antioch to Jerusalem. They didn't want Paul and Barnabas to go back alone. Otherwise, the people in Antioch who were teaching the false doctrine would have said, well, 
Paul and Barnabas didn't agree with us anyhow. And we don't know what they said in Jerusalem. So we're just they, they come up here just to teach against us. So that's why they sent Judas and Silas to come and confirm this is what they said at the Apostolic Council. And they have said emphatically that if you're teaching, you have to be circumcised. It's an error. We don't accept that. But they gave four things that if we're going to walk with God in the cultures in which we live, these these things we need to pay attention to. Now, I don't know what kind of moral prohibitions we would have to think about in our own culture when it comes to living for God. But, you know, we, we do have some pretty loose morals today. And we, we would have to really think about some things. If a person is a Christian, I would say that uh, we probably want to try to maintain our relationship so we don't end up in adultery. See, that's important. Um, when it comes to a lot of stuff that's even on television, the programs, the commercials, you, you know how offensive some of that stuff is to your sentiments you, you you just about have to watch those old black and white films now just to be able to find something you can halfway enjoy because how weird everything is but but even with that you have to practice temperance uh, a, a bit of self-control there are there are parents that put kids in front of the TV and use the TV as a form of babysitting. And, and people see all kinds of things they ought not see. But then that's the same with us as adults. A at some point, we have to ask God, give us a greater desire to read, you know, so I can fall in love with you through your word. And as, as I read your word, I'll love you even more. I mean, Tiff will tell you, I like to watch different programs and stuff on television too, but uh, you've got to guard those eyes and you have to guard the ears. And if I'm not a good guardian, I can promise you that the warden over there, she is. Yeah, the warden over there, she is. She, she, she makes sure. <laughs> and she checks stuff out. You know, I, I like that. There's, there's a movie or something I want to watch. She'll, she'll get on, research it, see whether or not, you know, some of this stuff might be appropriate or might have some language or something like that. And because uh, I don't want all that stuff. I, I feel like God's called me to be an anointed to minister the word of God. And the last thing I need is for me to try to get down to pray or try to get up to teach. And then you got all this other stuff in your head. So we try to walk with God and have a little bit of discipline. Uh, those are my convictions. Your, your convictions may be a little bit different based on the knowledge of God that you have. But I do know as you grow in grace and in knowledge, then God helps you with greater convictions and does a lot of wonderful things for you. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we look into the scripture, we can see why leadership and authority is important. Thank you for showing us so many times where we have been right and where we've been wrong. None of us are perfect. We understand that. But Thankfully, you are, and your son coming to down the cross for us has made the difference in all of our lives. We appreciate you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen.